Good morning. Wilkinson here. Today I am with Peter Bedard, and he is someone I met a while ago. We can't really figure out where we met, probably one of the local groups in Palm Springs, but Mm -hmm. he was in LA and now he's been here for a couple of years. So therapist and all kinds of stuff this guy does. So say hi, Peter. Hey, everybody. Good to be here. Glad to have you. Tell us about you. Who are you? That's such a, like, a, wow. I was born many, many months, years ago. I was born as a baby. <laughs> I was born. Okay, no, just hit some highlights to kind of give us a feel for... for right. Gosh, what would be important to your audience? So the thing that most people really get into is what we had chatted previously, where I had a near-death experience. I died and had to come back to this place. I didn't want to come back. Most people, when they come back and they have these near-death experiences, they want to come back for their children or something. And I was pissed off. I did not want to come back. So when I came back, uh, I spent many years trying to get out of this life. And I wasn't going to do suicide, but I was setting myself up, mostly subconsciously, to sort of check out again. So I had several experiences where I got really sick I had uh, severe dehydration and stuff like that to the point where I almost died from those things. I finally realized what I was doing and making myself or having, inviting these experiences where I could check out again. And I decided that I didn't want to do that, that I wanted to be here. But it took me a while to get to that place. When I was in that accident. Well, well, what year was that? That I finally came to no, wanting to be No, the year of the accident. When oh, it, it was many years ago. It was when I was a kid. I was just, but just before I turned 18. Okay. So it was back in the day and uh, I shattered my left knee in the accident. Somebody came up behind me, pushed me. Um, I was on my moto became. So I was driving my bike. I was on my way home from a performance. I used to be a dancer and actor and I was on my way home from that and somebody pushed my tires, my back tire and had launched me into a parked semi truck. So I died. I came back, obviously. I shattered my left knee into little tiny bits. I split my right wrist over. I lost all the nerves in my hand. I cracked five vertebrae. I had undiagnosed brain damage. So I came back to a body that was really destroyed. I lost my career. I was discovered as a dancer. That was sort of my path in life. I had, you know, there's football player bodies, <laughs> right. right? There's basketball player bodies. Well, I had the dancer body. I had the turned out hips and the turned out feet. And I had all that. I could jump really high and I could do all that stuff. So when I was younger, I was actually discovered to quote unquote as a dancer. And that was sort of my home. I, when I would dance as a kid, that felt like I was safe. And it felt like I had a place to be, like I belonged. And I didn't feel that anywhere else in my family or anything. So to finally have that at a point and then have that taken away was uh, uh, very upsetting. And I spent years trying to figure out what my life purpose was again, who I'm supposed to be. I had to heal myself of all these things. The Western medical doctors were amazing at putting the little tiny pieces of bone back together. It was literally like a jigsaw puzzle in my knee. They literally glued the bones back together. They had 14 surgeons from the NFL come in and because uh, an injury was from the back. My kneecap was fully intact, but the bones going into the kneecap were shattered into little tiny pieces. So they put a little bit of metal, but mostly just glued the bones back together. And they were, that was brilliant. Oh my gosh. The fact that I could, you know, get my knee back, at least, you know, the semblance of the knee back was just enormous, but they didn't know what to do with me after that. I had to learn how to walk. 
I had chronic, chronic pain. I had bone-on-bone contact in my knee. Uh, they told me by the time I was 40, I'd have to have my knee replaced if I could ever walk again. Uh, so and as a kid and as a former dancer, being told that I may never be able to walk again, that was devastating. So I had to just figure out my life. And they kept giving me drugs and surgeries, but they were always with a caveat of this might help. We'll take this drug. It might help. We could do this surgery. It might help. And so that, I really well, it's, wasn't it's interested. Called, it's called practicing medicine. Practicing. For a reason. <laughs> exactly. Practicing medicine. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they didn't know what to do with all the other stuff. I mean, I call that moment my sort of initial moment of this cascade of pain. I had fibromyalgia and arthritis and asthma and depression and anxiety and white blood cells that were attacking red blood cells and hemoglobin that was splitting and shutting down my organs. And like I said earlier, I came close to dying several times after that. I only had one near-death experience, but it's always funny to me that a near-death experience means that you actually died. (laughs) It's really not a near-death experience. It's like a death experience that you came back from. So I had these well, other they, experiences that's because they're saying death is like, that's final. Right. So right. that's why it was near. It was near final. Yeah, I guess. But I did die. I wasn't yeah. here anymore. I went to the other side. You can read all about that in my book, too. That's part of the story in there. I've had several experiences that I, I like to call close to death because I came right up to the door. The doctors had no idea what to do with me. And so I decided to launch onto a journey. And I figured out, I just said I was going to heal myself. And I did. I started doing, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, I went to this therapist, this doctor, whatever it was, it didn't matter how woo-woo it was. I've done bloodletting. I've done all kinds of things. And uh, I just did it because, uh, you know, I didn't have any other resources. So I lived paycheck to paycheck for a long time, just trying to figure out how to heal because I was in such extraordinary amounts of pain that I didn't want to take the drugs and go down that route. And my only, that was, as I saw it, my only option. So I did everything. I did every holistic alternative treatment that I could find and it ended up working. And you know, not everything did, but I started to look at disease in a different way. And I started to see in myself how this moment, this accident that I had, that there was a wound on the physical level, obviously, my body had been shredded, but there's also the wound on the mental level of, I didn't know who I was anymore. My identity had been taken away from me. I had no life purpose. I didn't know how to be in the world. And then on that heart level where my passion, my love was taken away from me, I didn't know who I was. So I had a broken heart, my mind was in panic, and my body was struggling. And I started to think, well, I need to heal all of those parts of me because great, like I said, the doctors were able to put the bones back together, but they didn't put my life back together. And so I had to heal myself and I started doing these, these therapies to and say, okay, what is my mind therapy this time around? What do I need to do right now? That's going to help my mind find peace and not be in that anguish and that panic and that fear, right? right. What do I need to do on that heart level for my heart to heal and, and have that sort of spirit healing? I like to think that the heart is the physical organ, but that connects with the divine. And my heart was broken and there was no connection that I could feel with any kind of source. And so I started to look at this like in the 90s, they were talking about um, 
combination therapies, cocktails, they were calling them, whether it was cancer or AIDS, they were coming up with these drug cocktails. And I started to think, well, what would a holistic cocktail look like that is healing and addressing each of these parts of me? And maybe not the one therapy had to address all parts, but that I, in my therapy journey and my healing journey, was addressing all of those parts. Right. And that's how I healed. I healed all kinds of things they told me could never be healed. I, we were speaking earlier. I grew my cartilage back. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. You know, my Western doctors told me that was stupid and that it was impossible to do. You have bone on bone contact. Uh, the only thing you could do is get a knee replacement. Well, I grew my cartilage back. I didn't need to get a knee replacement. I was able to heal myself that way, you know, and. And uh, I started to stumble on these different things and to look at healing from a broader, I guess we could say more holistic lens. Mm -hmm. And I started to, instead of beating up my pain, I noticed there is a habit that I had and that I saw in everyone else. And that habit was when there's a part of us that's suffering or a part of us we don't like, right? I used to have a, a horrible opinion about my body. I was very upset with my body and I thought my body was ugly and I would speak badly to my body. Like women talk about their thighs and they hate their thighs or whatever it is, right? Well, I said, I have to stop speaking to my body like that. And that's something that my cancer clients, I do a lot of work with cancer. And that was one of the things that really came out of those those clients with me, those patients, where they taught me that they needed to actually love their tumors. It's a part of them that's suffering. It's a part of them that hurts, that's not well. It doesn't need more abuse, right? And all I was doing is just dumping abuse. My anger, my embarrassment, my shame, whatever it was, I was hurting my body even more. And so I started to actually love my body and love the parts of me. They're suffering. I need to give them love. And I would start talking to them, sort of like a gestalt method. In my background, a couple of my teachers were Martin Rossman and David Bressler from the UCLA uh, pain clinic out there. And they started looking at, instead of beating the body up, what if you started to be to speak to it differently? Well, they were actually very involved in like doing things like blowing up your tumors. So if you had cancer, you were actually going to explode it or blow it up. And I started to say, no, what if we actually loved it? And there's a, an understanding in healing that the body knows how to heal. And I think that's true for the mind, too. Even when our minds are in anxiety, stress disorders, obsessive compulsive behaviors, that intuitively inside all of us, is this knowledge of how to heal. But we have to learn how to listen and we have to learn how to hear the body's requests. So I started to love the parts of me that were suffering and I started to ask them what they needed in order to heal. And that was a big change for me. And that's what I do with a lot of my clients. So Peter, you mentioned uh, your clients. So let's bring that in. What, What do you do? So I am an alternative therapist. When it came time for me to get my psychology degree, I was looking at the master's programs that were available and I didn't like what psychology was teaching. Now, this is 20 something years ago. And it was very about sitting on the couch and, you know, talking about your problems. And that really didn't work for me. It was also a model where they were looking at people as being broken 
and that there was something wrong with them that needed to be diagnosed and fixed. And that just didn't work for me. How I look at my clients is I look at them as who they are as whole, perfect, and complete, and that they always have been, and they were born that way. So life dumped stuff on them that maybe they didn't know how to handle. There was garbage covering over their truth. But as a therapist, my job was to actually reveal that truth. How do you do that? Well, uh, there's different processes. I think it's important in how you even start that type of relationship, right? That's one way. Like I start a relationship with my clients that I will not, I, I, even if they try and prove to me, there's some people that are very married to their pain, right? Physical pain, mental pain, spiritual pain, whatever it is, they're very married and identified by right, that pain. I say it's their identity. It's yeah. who they are, yeah. right? And I refuse to accept that. I will say to my clients, how my job is to hold the truth that who you are is whole, perfect, and complete, and always have been. And if you ever convince me that you're your disease, then I have to stop working with you because I can no longer help you, right? And I've only had, I've been doing this for almost 18 years. I've only had one client convince me that they were their disease, that that's just who they were. And I literally had to fire him. I, he kept trying to come back and I kept saying, no, I'm sorry. I, I can't help you because I can only see you as broken now. And so I can refer you to people. I can you know do that. But, but you convinced me. So he wanted to be broken? I think so. It's, it was his identity. It's how he knew how to exist in the world. And a lot of us get to that place. I got, I've been at that place that right. I, there was, I didn't know how to be. You know, I was in such excruciating pain every day. I, I, I can understand that. But I also knew that it wasn't who I, I, for some reason, some grace, some whatever reminded me and let me know that I am not that pain. Well, hopefully the guy went to the next therapist and yeah. and said, you know, this is who I am and I don't want to be this anymore. Yeah, I hope so, so. So maybe you were the stepping stone to something else. Yeah. Maybe my saying, hey, I can't work with you anymore, maybe was a wake up call. I hope so. Yeah. I don't know. So you wrote a book. I did. I was very blessed. I wrote a book. It's kind of a combination book. It's it's a little bit of, an, of, a, of a biography. So it's kind of my near-death experience and dying and coming back and that type of stuff. It's some of what I told you about understanding that healing is a, a mind-body-spirit type of thing. And we hear right. that phrase all the time, but most of us don't know what to do with it. And so I developed these processes that I came to call convergence healing. And these processes of loving the pain and talking to the pain and working with the pain and asking the pain what it needs in order to heal and letting the pain guide us into our healing. And so that's really the, what the book's about. You know, stories of my clients doing that and, and where it went. And you said you originally wrote it for your clients? Yeah, I was very blessed. Oh my gosh. I never thought that I would get published. It was something that I wanted to do. I'd been collecting stories over the years and I wanted to put together as a booklet type of thing to give to my clients to say, look, you may not be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel now. And here are several people that were in the same place you were in and look where they went. And so I was, I actually self-published it. It was only out. <laughs> I, I loaded it up and I had to take it down a week later. You know, people could buy the book actually for a week when I was self-publishing. And then it got passed to the president at the time of Simon and Schuster. 
And she bought the book from me. <laughs> so I had to take my original book down. And then we went in. They wanted to do some rewrites. So we went into rewrites for it. And it was very exciting. It was very cool. cool. How long did the rewrite take? Well, <laughs> that's a whole thing. Because the book was being used to launch a new uh, publishing imprint, a new house, basically, a publishing house under Simon & Schuster. And they had a deadline for when this needed to happen. And it was months away, just a few months away. And so we literally had to rewrite the whole book. The editor that was assigned to us initially thought that we had over a year. So she was coming for the first three, four weeks. She was coming to the process as if we had a year. And we were in a bit of a panic. I have a co-author that I, I, I wrote the book with, a friend of mine who helped me turn it into a book form. And uh, I now I know how to write a book, but I learned basically from him in this process. And so... Suddenly we had to get into, I don't know, light force, light speed and write the whole <laughs> book in a matter of a few months, <laughs> rewrite it in a matter of a few months. <laughs> so who broke the news to the editor? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were actually on the, on, in conversation with them and we were frustrated because we were saying, we need to get this done. We, we, we can't, we, we need to talk to you again later this week. And the editor's like, no, no, it's fine. Don't be so, don't rush the process. <laughs> and then finally we told the uh, the publisher and the publisher had to sit the editor down and say, I need this book in three months. And in those three months, I was hit again. I was in another accident. Somebody came up behind me, hit my car this time, spun my car around. I hit my head on the windshield and I slammed my knee on the dashboard. So it was kind of interesting to have a repeat situation from that right. initial accident. And I had a concussion that lasted for 10 weeks. So I'm trying to rewrite the book with a concussion. And if you have a concussion, you're not supposed to look at a computer. You're not supposed to watch TV. Your brain needs to rest. Like it's like the brain gets bruised. Right. And I could, I had to, I had wicked, horrible headaches. I had awful, awful headaches trying to rewrite everything, <laughs> but we did it and we got through. I had to really walk my process. Huh. <laughs> so what are you up to today? I think I think maybe walking in here, you mentioned you have a tea company. I do. What's uh, that? So, uh, you know, in learning how to heal physically, mentally, and spiritually, I also learned the power of herbs and mother nature and roots and barks and teas and flowers and all that type of stuff. And so I started using those for myself and it started to help. I felt better. It wasn't like the end all, but it certainly contributed to my healing. And so I started educating myself about how what we eat affects our bodies and how different herbs and teas and stuff like that can help the body reduce inflammation, you know, work healthier. And so I created all these tea blends. I have like an, a happy tummy blend. I have an anxiety <laughs> reducer blend, you know, that type of stuff that Mother Nature gives us stuff to help and they're delicious. And so I have a little tea company called Convergence Healing Teas. So what are you about now? Well, right now I used to, before the pandemic, I was teaching around the world. I was doing a lot of that. I would travel to different countries and 
teach workshops and classes. And it was, it was really actually a very selfish thing on my part because one, I love doing what I do and I get to share my work with, uh, you know, other people in other countries, but I also got to see those countries. So I I was, it was the best way to travel, right? I would, I would teach a class and people would have results from the class. So they would want to introduce me to people or, or whatever. So I would get taken out to lunch or, you know, get the, the, you know, the, the, native tour of the area where the residents would show me around. And I, I'm just getting back to that. I have to go to Tampa next week to do some work out there. But uh, right now I'm just seeing private clients and what, that's what the real focus. What countries did you visit? I was in Peru. I was in Turkey. I was in Spain. I was in France. I was in Ireland. Um, yeah, that's pretty much, that's okay. pretty much that's the a major. Nice yeah, it was great. Oh, Greece. Yeah. Greece. Oh yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. I love Turkey. And if I could have a choice, you were talking about Portugal. Uh-huh. Uh, if I could move anywhere right now and I could live there permanently, I, I would move to Mallorca in Spain. Really? I love Mallorca. Oh, I fell in love. Not Ibiza. Ibiza's the energy I don't feel is healthy in Ibiza and it's, it's too distracting and it's, yeah. But next door to Ibiza is the island of Mallorca. There's Majorca, which is another island. The biggest of them are is, is Mallorca. And it has the city of Palma on it. And it's just, it's just beautiful. I'll have to check that out. Mm, my place, my happy place. So my, my podcasts are not a hundred percent this, but I have a lot of gay guests. Are you gay or straight? Uh, you can't, I have my pride. <laughs> what? I know, but I'm, what? I'm setting you up because You're they totally... can't see that you have a shirt that says proud on it. I am totally gay. I have a big neon triangle above my head that really? I always, yeah, can't you see it? It's flashing uh-huh. on and Big, big triangle. What's your gay story? <laughs> What's my gay story? So yeah. I tried to come out very young. I would, it didn't work. Uh, as a kid, I knew I liked boys. I have a, er, my earliest memory of liking boys was being in kindergarten and the, the kindergarten playground was separate from the other kids' playground. And there was a fence that was probably about three feet tall. And I was stand, in my memory, I'm standing at this fence looking at all the boys running around, the older boys running around in the field. Right. And I'm standing with a bunch of girls and we're all giggling. <laughs> we're all giggling and pointing out all the because cute boys. Because all of you like the boys. Because all of us <laughs> like the boys. Right. And all of a sudden I had this moment of terror where I was like, Oh my God, I don't think I'm supposed to do this. Like somehow I had some awareness that my standing with the girls, looking at all the boys was a problem. And I, I, I don't know. I just stopped and walked away. So that was kind of my first moment of awareness and my first homophobic moment. So I tried to come out for a long time. I was Billy Elliot. You know, my dad was a Marine. Yeah, uh, I almost working said class. when you were talking about your dancing, totally. I almost said kind of a Billy Elliot oh, moment. Oh, total yeah. Billy Elliot story, story. You know, my, my parents never went to college. They were working class people. You know, they knew Bedford where you're, you're talking about, right? That's where they are from. And, and, you know, I took my parents, I think, to the theater for the first time when I was a kid, <laughs> all that, all that type of stuff. So I tried to come out many times in my youth and it just didn't work. I remember when I was about, I think it was 15 or 16 uh, back in the day, do you know, you know, the artist, maybe, you know, a lot of you're a photographer. So, you know, Maplethorpe. Oh yeah. Right. Well, Maplethorpe was part of that in the, what was it, the eighties. 
early 80s, uh, where there was the, the Congress was upset about the, um, funding, National Endowment of the Arts, right. funding gay artists, and, and there was all that talk about deviant art and stuff like that. And so there was an exhibit, Maplethorpe had died, and there was an exhibit coming around, and our local newspaper had an entertainment section, right? And I pulled it out, and on the cover of the entertainment section was one of Maplethorpe's famous photos. And I thought, oh, this is a segue. <laughs> we would sit at the table and read the paper, right? This is a segue. And I pulled it out and I said to my mom and dad, hey, we can go to the Maplethorpe exhibit, right? <laughs> I don't know why I thought that was a good idea. <laughs> but boy, it just, my parents are fantastic now. They really have come around. But back in that time, I mean, I just got a slew of hate you know, of Maplethorpe and how awful. And I don't think they even knew what he was. So when they actually figured out who he was, it was all those people up in, I grew up in the Bay Area. So those deviant people up in San Francisco, those men who wear dresses and those awful faggots and, you know, that type of stuff. I don't think they use that word, but it scared me a lot. And that right. was my effort to, one of my efforts to come out. So, so did, did you go to the exhibit with them? No, gosh, no. <laughs> I immediately <laughs> dropped the paper and I stopped trying. So was it an that. image that said gay? No, it was Maple's. The image was uh, of the, the silhouette of two men, a white man and a black man. Right. And it's the profiles. Okay. And, you know, that famous image where they just are slightly offset of each other. It's like a headshot, isn't it's, it? Yeah, it's yeah, very, yeah. very close. And it's, it's a profile and the two faces are looking away and you just see their profiles. And one head is slightly in front of the other. And it's a beautiful shot. And they didn't know who he was. So I had to stumble and say something about, oh, he's a photographer. I think I said he's a gay photographer or something. I didn't even say homoerotic or anything like that. And that just set it off. So I tried to be straight. I actually had a girlfriend. She was beautiful. She was Miss California runner up. Yeah, it didn't. I, I, I tried for, for nine months and that was it. Oh. <laughs> I finally came out in college. And, and she was my first too. It's so funny because so many of these stories are similar. I, in fact, I just finished another podcast. He's yeah. telling the almost identical story, the five-year-old, everything. And then he had the girlfriend mm -hmm. and, and, but his, his was funny. He said, she was my Barbie doll <laughs> and he used to dress her and oh do her gosh. hair and stuff. My friends are always taking away my gay card now. Because I'm never quote gay enough. You're not gay enough. Even yeah. with, is that why you wear the sign on you there on your yeah, shirt? Yeah, yeah. I have okay. to let people know. <laughs> I like using power tools. I've like you. I've I've rebuilt houses before. Yeah, I lose. I I, I don't know a lot about fashion. <laughs> uh -uh. I lose my gay card all the time. <laughs> yep. So that so, but in college you did come out finally. Yeah, I finally came out in my second year of college. After with that woman. So I'll, I'll tell a little candid story. So there was a guy, I was, I was going to school in Southern California and there was a guy who at my, where I was volunteering and he kept hitting on me and I didn't find him attractive at all. He was a little older than me. I didn't find him attractive. Uh, there was a bunch of reasons why I didn't find him attractive, but I didn't find him attractive. And he kept asking me out. And, and he kept making sexual advances on me. Now, I'm still but a virgin. But you weren't out, right? I wasn't you out. You weren't out. So I wasn't was, out, and I, I'm still a virgin. And his gay dare was going off, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Right. 
uh, and he's just pressuring me and pressuring me and pressuring me and being very sexually provocative and, you know, all that type of stuff. And I just, I said to myself, if you, cause I knew this was a, a sex thing. I knew that's what he wanted. I knew it wasn't a date, you know, just to go out. It was, and I said to myself, okay, if you go out with this guy and you have sex with him and you find him really repulsive, but you still have sex with him and you enjoy it, then you're definitely gay. And there's nothing you could do about it. It was my litmus test, right? Well, <laughs> so did you I set yourself bi. up for failure or did it work? <laughs> right? Well, I well, I couldn't be bi, right? That was right. right. So I went out with him. I had sex with him. It was awful. I didn't like him. I wasn't interested in him. And But I really liked the sex. It just felt, it felt right. It just something about it, even with somebody I wasn't attracted to. There was just this energy about being with another man that just clicked. And you were how old? 20, 22, something? I was, yeah, I was 20. Okay. (laughs) Just before my 20th birthday. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that begs the question, how was the second date? I never went on a second date. No, no, I assumed. I, yeah. No, gosh, no. Uh, uh-uh. I had literally it was a test for myself. Okay, so but it did intrigue you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah and I, I, you know, there was a part of me that was like, shouldn't I feel bad? Because you know, this guy's obviously interested in you. He's begging. He's been begging you to go out with him, trying to get you into bed with him for months by that time. But I thought he's so. So he was so inappropriate and so kind of gross that I didn't feel bad about not following Did up. Did he with try him. to go out with you again? Yeah. Okay. But you said no at that point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and maybe he was a nice guy. You know, maybe he was just, you know, really pushy and bossy. And I, I don't know, but he wasn't to me. Then what? Then what? Yeah. So you oh, came out? So no, I didn't. So that was the thing. I, I, I immediately went right back to my girlfriend and took the relationship more serious. So I went from just having a casual girlfriend to having a full-time girlfriend, moving in with each other, living with each other, all that type of stuff. So wait, but you said it pushed your buttons, and you knew you liked it, but you still, yeah. so you. But I still was, in, I still hated myself. I still had went. a dad who was a marine. Okay, you know what? What, what was it? my family would reject me, and they did. Right. Did you know, they? when I finally did come out, I my father in a in a very loving, strange way. My mother was devastated. My father was too, but he was able to make a phone call. So he called and said, we love you, but he basically disowned me. And I had, I couldn't go home. I couldn't see the family. I couldn't call. I was very specifically told that I was not welcome there anymore. Has he come to you for therapy? <laughs> no, but my parents are amazing. I am so grateful. So they grateful. came around at some they point? They came around. It took 20 years. Wow. Literally, it took it took about 20 years before my parents truly were fully comfortable and fully okay. They very quickly within the year, I had a boyfriend by that time and they invited him over for Christmas. Your father reneged on the you can't yeah. come home. And- yeah, okay. yeah, it didn't last that long, but there was always this uncomfortability and this blaming and there were always there was always this discomfort in the family whenever I was around. I didn't go to any big events in the family because if I did, then the pressure, I think, of the event, of the holiday, of the birthday, of whatever, just always triggered something where I was being attacked for some reason, whatever you, it was. Do you have siblings? Yeah. And they're older. Yeah. And how do they take it? 
Uh, my poor, my brother is, I don't even know what happened with him. He's, I don't know. <laughs> I won't talk about him. But my sister, I think she was very resentful to me for a long time because she, all the stuff got dumped on her. So she became my parents' emotional support, right? Mm-hmm. They couldn't talk to me. My brother was whatever he was. And so my sister was the one that had to deal with my mother being suicidal and my father being angry and the whole, what did we do? And why did, you know, he's going to hell and why did God do this? And what did we do wrong? And punishing, punishing shame, you know, all that type of stuff. Wait a minute. Your mother was suicidal literally because you're gay. Yeah, there was, I I don't know how far that went or how serious it was, but there was this severe depression with both my parents. Wow. That somehow they had failed and that life was bad and wrong. And what did they do to deserve this? And how could I be so awful? And that type of thing. But now they're okay. They are amazing. So I like to tell the story about my dad about, gosh, it was some time ago now. It was probably like seven, eight, maybe even 10 years ago. I don't remember. My parents were flying someplace. So they came into LA where I was living And they were flying from LAX. And I think it was the night before they were going to go to the airport the next morning or whatever. And we got in a fight. My mom said something really, really inappropriate. And at the time, my my boyfriend at the time, who I had just broken up with, was trans. And so we got in a huge fight about that. And my mom tried to make it about her. And I finally was able to say, Mom, I love you. But this isn't about you. She was doing the whole, how could you speak to your mother that way? type of thing. Right. And I finally got to say, mom, what you said was really inappropriate. And I'm going to hold you to that because, and and I'm not going to let you turn it around and do the, how could you be so disrespectful and, you know, speak to your mother. And so for me, that fight was a turning point. I was able to speak very honest and clearly to my mother and not let her, and she's been wonderful to go, okay, you're right. I'm so sorry. I, I don't mean to do that, you know, to her credit. Wow. That's hard yeah, to that's do. That's great. That's yeah. really hard to do. And my dad, I was, I was deciding whether I was going to go to, to Thanksgiving with my family. And I had a friend at the time that was one of your early, uh, I think she was the first uh, angel, you know, the whole, what is that company? The lingerie company, Victoria's Secret. Oh, there you go. Right. Not my thing. Not mine either. (laughs) But she was a friend and she was one of the first angels, right? That was, that's a big deal in the modeling world and the fashion world and all that, right? She was one of the first. I don't know what an angel of Victoria's Secret is, but that's okay. Okay. Victoria's Secret is a lingerie brand and they, they made their brand enormous by having these runway walks with women wearing their lingerie with giant angel wings. Oh. Right. Okay, so that's she was one of your okay. first angels. Okay. Really sexy, beautiful, amazing, like gay okay. men's fantasy, actually. I mean, it would be better <laughs> if there was a guy wearing the wings, but you know, gay men, we love beautiful women. You know, it's okay. just, it was stunning. So she was an angel. And I called my dad up and I said, you know, I don't know if I'm coming to Thanksgiving. And he says, why? And I said, well, I got invited to this woman I know and she's doing Thanksgiving and she's a Victoria's Secret angel and blah, blah, blah. And my dad says, well, don't those supermodel types always have a lot of gay men friends? Maybe you'll meet someone. Really? Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. That was like my, I just cried right there in that moment. You know, my dad wanted me to meet someone and be happy and, right. you know, go did you, to the supermodel Did you meet someone? 
What? Did you meet someone no. at the no? <laughs> no, the Thanksgiving but was the thought bu- was bust. There. Yeah, the thought was there. <laughs> How amazing for my conservative Republican military dad, you know, blue collar dad to come around. Yeah. I mean, what a gift that is. My parents are awesome. Yeah, I'm very grateful for them. Hmm. So with all you've learned over your span of life so far, what would you say to my listeners? You've learned this, what would it be? Well, two things. As far as your question, like, what would that be? I would say to figure out how to love yourself exactly as you are. To just be radical in loving your shame, literally. Because when you love shame and you love those hurtful feelings, those hurt emotions, those part of us that are suffering, if you really think about it, what they need more than anything is to be loved. They don't need more shame. They don't need more embarrassment. They don't need more fear. They need to be loved. So when we can love the parts of us that we think are unlovable, then miracles happen. Life unfolds. What what does that mean? Does it mean just saying, oh, I love my fat? In a way, (laughs) you can make it that that simple. Instead of making it wrong or bad or shaming it or beating it up or being embarrassed by it, I love my body. I love my body exactly as it is. I love all the parts of it. And when our... There's something that happens in the brain, something that happens definitely in the heart. And there's something that happens in the brain that when we become willing to love the part that's suffering, it's like that part that's suffering says, oh, I can heal now. It's phenomenal. When I'm sure you've had a friend who's been suffering tremendously and they're beating up themselves or they're being beat up, bullied and hurt. And when you absolutely come to them and you love them absolutely unconditionally, they find the strength to go on, to heal, to step forward, to do all that. And I think that's very true for ourselves, for those parts of us. Right. Because we are the biggest bullies. I mean, absolutely. I, huh. How many people bully their bodies? Yeah. You know, you're too ugly, you're too fat, you're too this, you're too that, right? I don't even want to say that directly into the microphone because, but if I just go, hey, you know, maybe I'm not absolutely happy with you. But I I want you to know that I absolutely love you and I'm willing to love you and just accept you. I hear you. I see you. That's huge. It is. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Peter, thank you for coming in. Well, thank you for letting me be here. It's I been love great. that we it's been we, fun. we had and our we misses. We have stuff to talk about. <laughs> we have lots to talk about. Yeah, we'll talk about some more stuff. But thank you for coming in today. You're amazing, Wilkinson. Thank you. You're welcome.